Steve Grove is sort of uh, the Kennedy School's favorite son in, 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 in tech land. He was uh, one of them, I should say, one of them. But he's certainly one of ours. Uh, when I called to ask Steve to do this, uh, he immediately answered his cell phone, which in and of itself is kind of an extraordinary thing for someone to do these days, I think. Uh, and he was in the marketplace in Cairo, uh, which just yeah, was just one of one of the ways that he is uh, is, is living his life these days. Steve uh, is now. His title is uh, the Director of News and Political Content Strategy and Programming for YouTube, which is a huge job and a huge mandate and a, an extraordinary amount of responsibility for someone who is so young. Uh, but he has been already in this position, uh, had incredible coups such as uh, interviews with uh, the president and debates and so forth. Uh, he is going to be interviewing Anne-Marie Slaughter. Uh, he will introduce her. She is also an old friend of the Shorenstein Center and also one of the people who is really thoughtful about the world it was and the way it's evolving into a very different world. Uh, Steve, the floor is yours. All right, thanks, Alex. And thanks for having me. I should say before we begin, I am a huge fan of the Shorenstein Center. Uh, when I was here, the Shorenstein Center gave me a grant uh, to start a cable access television show at CCTV down the road. Um, we called it Softball. It was sort of the Harvard student version of Hardball, I guess. Uh, and then when I graduated uh, from the Kennedy School, they also gave me a grant uh, to profile Kennedy School students around the world who are doing interesting things. And it was on that trip that I discovered YouTube as we posted clips you know, back to the U.S. of some of our footage, and so really became enamored with the site. So I sort of owe, uh, for sure, a, a big part of my last five years of my career at the Shorenstein Center. It's really an honor to be back here again today. Um, and it's a very special honor to be interviewing Anne-Marie Slaughter, who many of you may know, but I'll read off a couple of, of ticks from her bio just to sort of set the stage before we begin. Um, she did a prestigious career in international affairs and international law. Um, essentially, for the decade after 9-11, she was the dean of the Woodrow Wilson School uh, down at Princeton, and um, this is a time when everyone was rethinking foreign policy completely, uh, as was Anne-Marie uh, and her team at Princeton. She really sort of rebuilt the school with a new faculty, new staff, several new centers, uh, wrote a new book called, uh, wrote a book called The New World Order. Um, and then she went on to uh, work for Secretary Clinton for a couple of years in the government, which is what I'd like to talk to you about today uh, to start us off. Uh, Henry, when you were uh, at State, there was this new sort of buzzword that started coming out um, in, your, in, your, in your two years there called 21st century statecraft. And I wonder if you could just sort of ex tell us what you think 21st century statecraft is. So first of all, it's great to be here. It's great to be back. Uh, I have not been back often uh, since uh, I left Harvard Law School and the Kennedy School for Princeton, but there are many old friends, and I will say uh, the only thing I'd add to my bio is that I'm Slaughter AM on Twitter. I bill myself as a foreign policy curator, uh, as many of you can actually see. Um, uh, and no, it's amazing. You have 16,000 followers on Twitter, and you tweet about foreign policy. <laughs> I mean, you're not tweeting about dancing cat videos on YouTube or the latest <laughs> Justin Bieber. No, uh, it's really I, I, I try to st stick to foreign, foreign policy. But one thing I will say is, as I join this world of uh, everything from digital activism to media to tech, 
uh, the, the Shorenstein Center and the Berkman Center are together really the place to be. I, I hate to say that coming from Princeton, but uh, there's just tremendous uh, resources here, and I often find myself reading and resending things that come from here, so I'm particularly pleased to be here. So now that I've dodged your question All for right. a while, 21st, uh, century, 21st century statecraft. So 21st century statecraft uh, actually uh, came out of Alex Ross, Alec Ross, who is the uh, Secretary's Special Advisor for Innovation, uh, actually had been on the Obama campaign's team for media, and then Secretary Clinton hired him. Uh, and uh, policy planning, my shop, Jer uh, uh, with Jared Cohen, who's now the head of Google Ideas. And what it is, is a way of using technology to engage as many non-traditional participants as possible in foreign policy. So most people actually think, oh, it's just, you know, Twitter diplomacy. It means now our embassies are tweeting uh, what they do. Well, yes, they are, but they were doing that as part of public diplomacy. What made 21st century statecraft really important was thinking about all the ways technology can advance uh, our foreign policy goals uh, and thinking about how you use technology to bring NGOs, business, universities, uh, and individuals into the foreign policy process. So I'll just give you um, a couple of examples. We led what we call tech dels to different countries. So we, a technology delegation, high-level executives from Google and YouTube and Twitter and various technology companies, went to Iraq, to Russia, to Brazil, to Syria. I led one to Sierra Leone and to Liberia. In each of these, we would go to the country, obviously be hosted by the embassy, uh, and then the embassy uh, would, would organize lots and lots of meetings with the nonprofit sector, the private sector, all focused on how you could use technology to work on whatever problems they were working on. In my case, in Sierra Leone and Liberia, we looked at it, how you use technology to reduce maternal mortality. Uh, but we also connected them with Google people and Twitter people and other people that they could then uh, continue to consult in various ways. So that's one example of how we, it isn't just about using the tools, it's thinking about how the tools transform what you can do uh, to, to solve foreign policy problems. So why, why private companies? Why would you bring a private company on an international diplomatic trip or a tech company? Well, tech companies, because that's where, as we've been hearing this morning, as Joe Nye said, that's where the infrastructure is, that's where the energy is, that's where the innovation is. Uh, and we wanted uh, to engage uh, those folks as much as possible. Uh, sometimes you had, uh, a lot of it was public-private partnerships. So in the Haiti earthquake, for instance, we combined Ushahidi, which is the software that was, it means witness in Swahili. It's the software that was developed in Kenya for people to be able to report on the elections from wherever they were. We took that, we applied it in Haiti to, so that people could tweet, uh, not tweet, but send in uh, where they needed help, but we used a private company to help fund it. So I actually think that is the model for foreign policy going forward. Increasingly, it will be public-private partnerships. It's interesting, at the Washington Ideas Forum a week ago, just about every government official who was up there started talking about public-private partnerships. Part of that is because government's resources are reduced, so you don't 
you have to reach out. But part of it is just there's so much capacity to mobilize in the private sector and the, and the civic sector uh, that you, you, it'd be crazy not to bring, that, yeah, bring them in. Yeah. You know, it's been an incredible, incredible year for technology and politics. Um, it's funny, a lot of the things that we've seen within the tech community over the past six months have kind of verified and amplified the trends of the past four or five years, but now I think sort of everyone has woken up to this. Um, but I want to take a look back at the Arab Spring for a moment and what's the role that citizen media played, the role that personal technology played. You know, some say it, it documented what took place, some say it inspired people, some say it, it, it organized people. A lot of conjecture about what the influence of these tools were for people. When you look, look back at this and look forward at citizen media and, and foreign policy, what do you think is the actual net worth of citizens being engaged in this way? What, what is the most important role that personal technology is playing as citizens now are on the stage of, of being involved in foreign policy more directly? Well, so I'm, I'm not going to claim uh, direct knowledge. I'm going to quote an Egyptian blogger who appeared at the Personal Democracy Forum in, in June, uh, who was very engaged in uh, the April 6th movement. And the way he described it was that technology allowed them to stay one step ahead of the government, that prior to having Facebook and Twitter, they'd had to take over an entire institution, a whole factory, a whole university, because they had to mobilize everybody. And by the time they did that, the government had caught up with them. And what he said was this allowed them to take every group with a complaint you could imagine, from soccer clubs uh, to uh, factory workers to students, much smaller groups, link them all up, and stay one step ahead of the government. So it is not the cause of these revolutions. And we know that. To call them Twitter revolutions is when people are standing in front of bullets is really to denigrate the courage and the determination of people who've decided that they've had enough. That said, it's not just amplification. I mean, the folks who want to say nothing new under the sun say, ah, this is just amplification of their message. Not so. It allows them to, to it's, it's like asymmetric warfare. It allows them to even up uh, the playing field, them versus the government, and to stay one step ahead. Now, the governments, of course, are catching up as fast as they can, and I, I think of that as kind of the technology of liberation versus te the technology of oppression. It's the same technology. Yeah, I mean, you look at, for example, the Iranian government has used YouTube videos to target specific dissidents and go after them. The Chinese government has tracked web activity to, uh, to find who's organizing and where. Um, are you worried about that? Do you think that the in which direction is the balance tilting right now? Because certainly governments are, are, are catching up to using these, these tools you know, just as savvily as the as citizens are. Well, I, I should quote Vivek Kundra this morning. Having been in government, I'm pretty confident that the kids will stay one step ahead. <laughs> I really am. I mean, in terms of the innovation and the constant ferment and adaptation, which is what you need, the Chinese government, the Syrian government, it, they are, it is a real problem. I mean, obviously, they can, they can document, they can spread misinformation. I don't mean to make light of it. And when these activists are captured, the first thing people want is their cell phone, and then they can go on to their uh, Twitter account or their Facebook account. Uh, but I, I really do put my money on the, on the kids. When you look at what's happening on Wall Street right now, um, do you see similarities with what's happened in other parts of the world this year? I do. I mean, again, I, I would, the first thing I would say is the difference between facing 
tanks and guns and camping out in, on a square in Wall Street. I mean, even if the New York police are not being, uh, not doing what they should, is, is radically different. So to say, you know, this is our Arab Spring, I think diminishes, again, the courage of what we see in the Middle East. That said, I think they're similar drivers, and I think the organizational structure is definitely sim similar. The drivers, I do think, are what, I, what I've written, I call it invisibility and injustice. The injustice is simply the, the gross inequality and the sense that you know, people who are on the edge of financial and social ruin are sitting there next to people who are, whose bonuses are going up. Uh, and you know you see that if you, it, it, it's 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 widespread. It's actually part of what drives the Tea Party, but it's definitely there. But the other piece, and this I think is similar in the Middle East, has been this sense of invisibility that the political system is not responding. So they are going to actually take this into their own hands. The other thing that is similar is this radical decentralization and this refusal to want leaders. Right? It's. And there, there's similarities, again, in Egypt, where the media kept trying to go to various people and say, so you're the leader, Wael Gonim, you're the leader. And then he would say, no, 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 I'm not the leader. I don't want there to be a leader. Now, part of that is they didn't want to be arrested. But part of that is a philosophy of radical decentralization, local mobilization, and general democracy. They'll discover pretty quickly that you know, full democracy means nothing ever gets done. But it is a stage that, you, that, that they go through. I wonder if you, we live in a world now where information moves very fastly. Citizens do have the power of, you know, the NBC news studio in their pocket with their cell phone camera. They can organize in new ways. Um, do you ever th wonder if citizens actually have an inflated sense of their ability to exercise power because they have a less patience today or more power through technology? Do, do you think there's a gap in sort of um, people thinking, oh, well, I, I have the same power as NBC news because I have a cell phone camera in my pocket, but they might not actually have that. I mean, because we see some of these things succeed and some of them don't. That's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about people thinking they have too much power. Well, uh, not too much power, but actually thinking they have more power than they do because, uh, because some of these technologies yeah. have given them new opportunities. Well, what, when, what I do see is a certain amount of, you know, if you capture it and upload it or tweet it, you done something, right? So there is a danger of substituting the witnessing for the actual mobilization and, and, and action, because we still need actual uh, action. But I have to say, in, in many of the ways that we heard about this morning, I mean, for instance, in people being able to witness corruption or witness human rights violations and send that out individually, that's not that powerful. But if you put in aggregators, and again, we, we need a whole new vocabulary for an entirely new set of professional roles. I mean, curators, aggregators, connectors. So the aggregators that put all those little pieces of data together, you put that has power. And then you also need the experts, right? And you need the people with legitimacy to then, to, in, in political circles, to say, hey, look at this. And you have to actually then mobilize action. How do you get your news every day? I get it through Twitter. Uh, Twitter has, has revolutionized the way I understand the world and connect. So I, I want to say something now, Marvin, you were talking about translating. For many of you, there are two conferences going on right now. There's the conference that's happening right now. We're sitting here, we're talking, you're listening to us. 
many of us are actually tweeting what we're seeing, and you can see that up on the screen as we go. If this were a younger conference, I'm sorry, but that's the way it is, um, you would actually see many more people talking to each other as they tweet. So they would be listening to us, they would be tweeting, somebody else would be responding, other people would be watching that on the screen as it was going on, and it would be two, you know, multiple conferences. At the same time, I checked this morning as I was tweeting, it was, my tweets were getting retweeted by somebody in Beijing, by somebody in Indonesia, and by somebody in Spain. Uh, and all of those had 1,000 plus followers. And you'll see, it'll get retweeted all day long. So um, this, it's hard to describe that the, the, for me, Twitter has meant that I'm now connected to all sorts of people. There are people in this room I've never met, but I feel like I know because I met them through Twitter. And when I go to conferences, I was just in Lagos, and I met a New York Times columnist I had met through Twitter. They have, oh, it's opened my life. I get much better news. I still read the Times. I just read it on Twitter. <laughs> I just read the stories that I know people are, are sending. But it means uh, that I don't just think the New York Times is gospel anymore. Right. So Twitter for you is... is and YouTube. A, <laughs> Well, YouTube is sort of the content that gets put Right. Out I mean, most of these tweets are linking. That's the other thing. These are not 140-character messages. These are links to YouTube videos of, you know, Syrian protesters getting clubbed or Libyans or what, what's going on on the ground or blogs or, or newspaper commentary. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we've done at, at YouTube to try to – because for me – Twitter is sort of just this fire hose of information. It, it takes a long time to filter out, you know, these are my Syrian Twitter follower people. These are my, so there's a lot of effort that has to take place in order to do that. So YouTube, what we're doing is we work with this firm called Storyful that actually does yeah, these sort of could. social search algorithms that then sort of compiles all that stuff into feeds for you so you can consume it more, more consistently. So we have a, we're getting more and more effective raw streams of footage. But I wonder if, you, when you think about just the me media in general right now, so we have an increase in information from citizens from around the world, but as we all know in this room, a decrease in the number of foreign bureaus. Um, even I think, I read a, a recent study that said something like 50% less foreign news is now in American newspapers than it was five years ago or something. So are you worried there's a gap between, okay, we're getting a lot more information from different sources around the world, but in fact, uh, American journalistic institutions aren't able to go out and cover it in the same way as they, they once were. I'm not. Uh, I'm not worried because, as we heard this morning, I think journalism is getting disaggregated and put back together differently. So if you think it used to be one person who got out there, who discovered as much data as he or she could, who then wrote it up, then it got edited and out it went. Now you've got the data gatherers who are the people who are, are reporting on what they see. So we have infinitely more information actually from the field. Then you have aggregators. Then you still have people who are writing, whether they're, they're bloggers uh, or journalists on site. So I now follow foreign newspapers. I might have once followed the Foreign Bureau of the New York Times. Now I'm following the local newspaper uh, and, uh, and getting information directly there. And then you have the curators who are bringing it together. So the, the functions that a newspaper performed are all getting performed, but they're getting broken out and done by many different people. Now, how we put that all together in market models that make sense, well, that's part of the questions of today. But there are you know, they're, they're boutique sites. I think also, if you look at the Daily Beast or HuffPost, they're, they're bigger sites uh, that, you, that you can go to. I think it's a, it, it means many, many, many more people 
can participate in the enterprise. You don't have to get blessed, you know, by one of the top newspapers. If, if your next job was to take sort of Ken's question for Vivek earlier, not to run the Boston Globe, but let's say to run the foreign, the foreign section, foreign affairs section of, of a newspaper today, and let's say you had uh, at least a little bit of money to get going, how would you begin to put together these pieces, curators, aggregators, correspondents? What are the sort of key variables you would put together to, as an institution, create a great foreign affairs page? Well, so my answer is going to quickly disabuse anybody of ever wanting to put me in this position. <laughs> um, but what I would do, I have actually given some thought to this just because you have so much information available on YouTube and Twitter uh, and Facebook. But the first thing I would do is get what I think of as scourers. It's a hard word to say, but people who would scour Twitter feeds and, and YouTube and the internet. It's not that hard to do because there are hashtags and there's lots of categorizing going on. But people who really are good at looking at a whole mass of data and pulling it together. So that's the first thing I would get are people who are mapping what's out there and bringing it in. Then you would get curators who, who figure out very quickly what's efficient. I mean, I. The reason I say I'm a foreign policy curator on Twitter is because I've spent 25 years studying this stuff. I, can, I don't try to follow it systematically, but I can look at 200 tweets and tell you pretty much instantly which 10 are interesting. I mean, any of us can in our area. That's, that's my expertise. So you can get curators who will be able to look very fast and say, yeah, this is relevant, this is not. This is news, this is not. This is credible, this is not. Then from there, you get people who can turn it out that way. So you have a website that you can actually go, you know, you have a Twitter feed. And, and this was, uh, Vivek said this again, you still really need the experts and the, the people who can offer you insight. Those people, if anything, are more important than ever because there's so much information. So again, I would have many of the people who are there now but I would have them doing it across a much wider base uh, and in a more disaggregated way. I want to ask you a little bit about the intersection of government and media. Uh, a little bit later today, we get to hear from the Washington Bureau Chief of Al Jazeera. Um, and I want to read you a quote uh, that I read of his recently that I found really interesting. He was responding to some criticism that Al Jazeera is funded by the government. He said, to be honest, I don't know what objective journalism means. If you're an American network broadcasting from the U.S., you'll be broadcasting with a sensibility that may not look necessarily objective to an audience in another part of the world. And the same is true if you're a network like Al Jazeera Arabic broadcasting out of the Middle East. Do you agree with that? Well, I certainly think there are degrees of objectivity, right? I mean, so when I read the New York Times, uh, and often after I've been on Twitter for a while, the New York Times is a, is a kind of haven. You know, you get back to really curated, you know, well-edited uh, journalism, uh, as opposed to, you know, I, once I was engaged in the Libya stuff, everybody sent me stuff from Libya. Most of it was advocacy, right? It took me very little time to figure out that I did not want to retweet this stuff because it was, it was not verified. Um, so I think there is there's more objective journalism and less. I actually think Al Jazeera is pretty good, I'm not, but it, it certainly has its biases. New York Times has its biases, The Post, The Globe, they all have their biases. What I think we're seeing, and here again I'll build on what Vivek said, is we're more able to get at what we think of as the truth, and there's no one thing that's the truth, but there's things that are more the truth than others through really what is a globalization of the adversary system. You know, I'm a law professor originally. Um, 
American legal system is based on the idea that as many people pounding at pieces of information is the way you get at the truth. That's not the European system. The European system is you know, one person investigating. But we believe, as a country, in the adversary system when we're thinking about the kind of truth that is responsible for putting someone in jail or not. And one way of thinking about what we've heard this morning is exactly that. As you, as you just heard in the last panel, you say something wrong, and boy, do you know it. <laughs> Very quickly, you know, it gets corrected instantly. So I actually do think that with lots of different players, and again, when I go on Al Jazeera or I go on The Times or The Economist or many of the people I still follow, I know that's more objective than when citizen journalists. Uh, but even there, it's good to read other newspapers that will contradict what Al Jazeera says, uh, but also Al Jazeera to contradict what other newspapers say. Yeah. I wonder if you've thought about the role that like state-run media plays in all this. One of the top-viewed YouTube channels in the news section of YouTube is from Russia Today. They're phenomenal at, at pushing information out um, on the web and, and around the world. Um, CCTV and the Xinhua News uh, outlet in, in China are, are incredibly powerful doing the same. The U.S. used to do this more with VOA and, and Radio Free America, I think Radio Free Europe, yep. but not so much anymore. Is the U.S. behind in this regard? Is that the wrong approach? What's your sense on that? No, I don't. I mean, it is interesting to watch how governments are, are doing this. Uh, it reminds me of living in China and, you know, reading the China Daily every day. You knew it was radically biased, but there was nothing else in English to read. So, you know, you read it and, and tried to uh, sort of sort, sort out. But for the U.S., we, are, we don't need an official voice. The, not the, you know, there's so many American journalists on these uh, social media platforms uh, who are who are providing information. One thing we're doing, some of our best embassies are doing, is becoming aggregators of good information that is often critical of surrounding governments. So the U.S. Embassy Pretoria, which is Don Gibbs is our is our uh, ambassador, and he's very familiar with technology. They get online every morning and they call news from across Africa. And it's great stuff. So instead of it being, here is what the United States of America thinks, it will pull something from a Kenyan pundit. It will pull something uh, from a, from a, a newspaper uh, in another capital. And if you follow it, you actually, what you're seeing is the United States as a platform for lots of different information, good information, often contending and critical information, which I think is a far better way to yeah. pitch yeah. ourselves. I mean, it's sort of like the BBC in some ways, you know, funded yeah. a little bit by the yeah. government, but a, a symbol of Absolutely. Good journalism versus something else. Um, when you were in, in office, uh, you, when you did this quadrennial review, which essentially looked at all of the State Department and said, what can we do better? Um, one of the other things you talked about was setting up these sort of regional media hubs. Uh, I'm probably going to get this wrong in the specifics, but the general idea was setting up media hubs where communities could come together and practice journalism, learn about it. Has that happened? And can you tell us a bit more about that as a strategy mm. for public diplomacy? So there are a couple of media hubs, but uh, we've got we've got a long way to go. And one of the things Secretary Clinton did immediately, uh, and Judith McHale, the Undersecretary for Public Affairs, uh, was to say, we have to respond to everything. I mean, we had situations where, you know, terrible things were being said about the United States, and nobody would respond for, you know, 
base. And so there were war rooms created in embassies. Now, one of the things you have to do if you're going to respond is you have to loosen up the controls on the diplomats who are going to respond. I mean, it's off in the middle of night in Washington. So if they want to say something and they have to go back to Washington, well, it's going to be 24 hours. On the other hand, they might say something that isn't vetted, right? And so there has to be, you have to tell them that they can respond. But deeper than that, you have to allow more risk in the culture. And the diplomatic culture, for understandable reasons, is rather risk averse. So there was a lot there. The regional idea was also that you could uh, partly just consolidate uh, different, different things, but also that you could bring people together from a region and then have a regional strategy uh, for news. Mm -hmm. the, some of it, some of it is, is working. I actually think, though, the idea of different embassies in different ways becoming platforms for, for uh, news is a, probably a better way to go. Yeah. You wrote a, a book of three or four years ago about American values. Uh, and I think you actually went on the Colbert Report and talked I about did. it. I did. I remember seeing that clip at some point. <laughs> it's the only thing my kids think is remotely cool, <laughs> that I was on Colbert. <laughs> well, I remember you, you were talking about, um, about American values and, and how the world sees us. And, and I wonder, A, does the world care as much now about American values? And, and B, like, is there, what, what is the best way to demonstrate American values through media? Is there something that we could be doing better as, as, a, as a country, as a government, as, a, uh, as journalists even, to, to speak with the rest of the world about what, what it means to be an American? Hmm. Um, well, the first thing I would say is actually, if you look at the national security strategy of the Obama administration, it uses the formulation that America's national interest is respect. It is in America's national interest for there to be respect for universal values. And I think that's the way to put it. These are universal values. We have a version of them. We, in this uh, room, I, you know, our, our version of freedom of speech is more extreme than anybody else's version of freedom of speech. But freedom of speech is a universal value. We have the way we interpret it. Many other countries have different, different ways. Uh, and that's the way I, I think about it. Um, but I think the best, by far the best way to live our values is, in fact, to be openly self-critical and to embrace that constant process of contestation and of we're not, whole, we're not living up to our own standards, uh, we're supposed to. That process is what I think is, is best about us. It's exactly that we say we're for liberty and justice and equality. Well, how come our income distribution has, has uh, gotten so terribly skewed? If we say we're for equality, how can that be? And for the world to see that process, because we don't have any special you know, s superior characteristics as people. We do have a system that allows a constant process of critique and improvement. Uh, and that, to me, is what we ought to be showing. And a lot of this media is exactly about that. Yeah. Well, I want us to send us the questions, so please uh, head to the mic if you have one. And my last question would be, returning to 21st century statecraft, yes. we, we begin our conversation on. Um, moving forward, as you look in the future of what, where 21st century statecraft is headed, what can the State Department, what's the most important thing the State Department can do to effectively practice it? My own view is that we can be the place that knows all the best ways that you can use personal mobile devices to empower individuals, whether that are, those are expectant mothers who can get 
uh, weekly texts to tell them what they should expect while they're expecting. Every American woman who's had a child knows that book. Uh, but you can, you, in Russia, we launched an app that now tells every Russian woman, if she's got that app, what to expect, but also allows them to send in health information, which in turn allows them to get to a clinic well before crisis. Or we ought to know far more about what's working uh, in technology that combats corruption. So I paid a bribe. Every time you pay a bribe, you, you text it, and then you can map that. I could give you 10 other examples. I think if, if 21st century statecraft is about bringing as many non-traditional participants into the enterprise uh, and using technology to solve problems, the best thing we could do is to really be expert in how individuals who have this technology more and more can empower themselves. Great. I have two questions, Roland Schatz from MediaTenor. Coming back to the Arab Revolution, do you really believe that it was YouTube videos who got the people on the street, or was it not people like Nick Gowing taking one or two of the videos on BBC World, on Al Jazeera, on Arabia, and that made the people going in the streets and fighting for their rights? And the second question is, um, you put so much effort into social media and engaging the people in that region. How come that the distrust into the American government is growing by the years and not going down after all these efforts? Do you, do you, want, do you want me to answer the YouTube you, question? You answer I, the YouTube I, I question. I think you're absolutely right that the, the, video, the key videos being curated and put on television is just a, is a tremendous end of that process. I mean, the way we look at it is you have this massive amount of content on a platform, 48 hours of video uploaded every minute, 3 uh, billion videos viewed every day, I think is the latest stat. Um, the first thing is just finding it, and so we use both you know, curation with the group Storyful I was talking, telling you about, but also some algorithmic things to find that stuff. Then we try to hub it together on this channel we have called CitizenTube, but then the most important thing we do is we then push it to the media. So we, we drive all broadcast media to this channel, they take a look, they put it in context, they work it into their stories, and that to us is the, the critical final step is what ends up on CNN or what ends up on the BBC or whoever else has been looked at by someone who practices journalism. We at YouTube you know, don't do that. We don't scale that way. That's not how we can, that's not the value that we add. So I see in some ways our responsibility is discovery and curation, and then the journalist's responsibility is to, you know, to provide context. Uh, and so <laughs> in the first place, we've put so much energy into this. I've, I was only in government for two years, and much of what I'm talking about is barely a year old. So I would not for a minute expect it to uh, increase uh, trust in the U.S. government. And actually, if you take my model that says a lot of what people ought to see is American citizens challenging their government, I don't necessarily expect them to trust our government. Uh, I do expect them to see that our government lives its values of, of accepting citizens challenging it in every way, and that to me is, is an important message uh, to say. But overall, you know, the reasons, we know the reasons that, that uh, we have you know, dismal rates of approval uh, across the Arab world. It has much more to do with Iraq than it does any kind of social media. I do think uh, one of the big reasons that I supported uh, intervention in Libya was the sense that we now have a new generation coming of age uh, in the, in, across the Middle East. We now have to actually try to live our values as much as we can, and we're still not in all sorts of ways, necessary foreign policy trade-offs, 
Uh, but where we can, they need to see that we are willing to go in there and actually support the people in the streets, and that over time, that can improve our relationship with, with lots and lots of people. But I don't expect them to love us anytime soon. Let's go over here. Thank you. Thanks for the great conversation. Um, one of the leaders... You are. I'm Bill Powers, former Shirostein Fellow. One of the leaders of the uh, Egyptian Revolution was an employee of Google, which struck me as a metaphor for how influential our technology companies have become in the world, just separate from our government. Is there a way in which American technological power is converging with American political and diplomatic power in the world? And is that a good thing, a bad thing, or neutral? Mm. Well, there, um, I mean, it, I would frame it a little differently. I would say that being the source of this technology is very, very good for us in the world. At a time when we are losing credibility politically and, finan and financially, uh, if you look at the four horsemen, uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter uh, and YouTube and Amazon, you know, you, you are, those are still coming out of us. There's all sorts of exciting stuff going on elsewhere, but fundamentally, I think most people who are using these media are seeing the United States in that light, and that's just a very good thing. And to the extent that technology, again, can help empower people, they, that's also a way that they ought to see us. But I don't think we should try to do it more deliberately. And actually, I said we led these tech delegations. We obviously didn't just take Google folks, right? We took as many people as we could uh, to, and similarly, USAID's done a lot with the Gates Foundation and with Microsoft because that's where the head of it came from. He's very careful to, to make sure that we're not identifying the government with any one technology company. Over here. Oh, hi, I'm Martin Nissenholz from the New York Times Company. Um, thanks, by the way, for your kind words about the Times. There, there, there's a bit of an undertone in some of these conversations about an either-or. It's either traditional media or, and I just wanted everyone to know that we are deeply integrating Twitter, Facebook, Google uh, into our experiences. A good example, when we covered the uh, hurricane coming up the coast at the end of August, a lot of the stuff that was being reported was being reported through Twitter yep. on our pages, yep. curated by our folks. So the model that you've laid out, I don't think is that far away, actually happening in traditional news organizations. And, you know, it's, it's already happening in many respects at the Times. Um, Facebook is now powering all of our identity management systems. I, you know, so we see these deep relationships as very, very important to us and as as, as being, you know, kind of paving the way for the future. So I just wanted, wanted you to know that. So I, I'd just say a lot of the Times reporters have been fabulous on Twitter. And, you know, C.J. Chivers or Chivers, I don't yeah. know how to, I just yeah. see the written. But, you know, the Times Libya correspondent, would, you could tweet him when he was on the ground in Libya and he'd be responding. It was really extraordinary. And then you'd read his pieces as soon as he posted them. And then you'd see them in the paper. I still get a paper. Um, it, I don't always well, read it, but that. it's still there. Uh, and uh, so I, I think that's absolutely right. And Nick Kristof has a million oh. Followers, he's, he's been, right? When Nick Kristoff yeah, tweets he's, he's something, it's, it's very powerful. The only thing I'd say is, and I think that's right, but my vision, and it, it might not be profitable, but the day the Times advertises for curators, 
right? That, that, that actually, that there's a cat, there are categories of people who can amplify the way you do that um, in, in more non-traditional roles. So I think there's no. a tremendous mix, but there's another couple No, I, I absolutely agree. It's, one must be patient, but um, I, I, don't, I don't think that that's an impossibility. Um, I, would, I would just suggest, and our, our ex-public editor is here, he may want to make a comment at some point, that, that you know, in looking for curators, it's a little bit more difficult than it may seem at, just on the surface, only because so many people who aren't, you know, subject to the, the um, I don't want to say the values because they're subject to the values, but to the rules, in fact, of, of, of the journalistic That's community may have conflicts of interest that are hidden. So you can go to a physician, for example, who's a deep expert on kidney disease, but he, he hasn't really told anyone that he's also a consultant with Pfizer. So now you're asking him to be a so-called curator in an area where he has a clear conflict of interest. Now, clearly there are identity management processes that can, that can clean that up over time, but we really do have to be careful about conflict when we go into that, that world. So just, as, just, just, just a heads up. Thank you. Over here. I'm Beth Noble. I was a doctoral student here, and now I'm a professor at Fordham. Okay. Um, I spent 14 years as a correspondent based in Moscow, uh, and so I have to pick up on what you said about Russia today. Um, this is a, a highly biased news channel uh, funded by the Russian government, and so their view of events in Russia is pretty different than the view of events I reported, say, when I was at mm -hmm. CBS. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how do we teach people to be educated consumers mm. of news uh, and information in a world where the information sphere is so big it just can't be curated? Well, I don't know how we teach it. As a mother, I think I see it happening uh, in the sense that I really did grow up believing the printed word, if it, particularly if it was in a book or of an official newspaper, then it was true. But my kids don't think that at all because they constantly get conflicting information and indeed we often look up conflicting information, right? We don't look at the, the, the uh, um, Encyclopedia Britannica, we Google something and lots of different things come up. That is, that's, so I think that's happening here. I take your point in a place like Russia where people are less digitally connected or even if they are, they are less used to multiple sources of information, that's much tougher. But for in the sense of people here consuming that news, you would get Russia Today, but you'd also get Russian bloggers and you'd get uh, you know, other, other sources. So I just think that the respect for the fact that something is written is, or, or put out there is much less. Yeah, the web has created a, a new culture really around, uh, a culture of scrutiny, but also this culture of understanding that information simply just comes from different places. And it, it, there's not a, the, the high priest voice necessarily isn't something that younger folks today encountering news for the first time necessarily you know, take in. Over here. Nick Gowing, um, I was a fellow here back in 1994 and what I'm going to share with you is the work that I've been doing since then which continues very much the spirit of what I did way back then when it was about the CNN effect. I'm a main presenter for the BBC now. Uh, I was at ITN then. First of all, a comment to Anne-Marie. Uh, as with the New York Times, we are embracing this yeah, incredibly and when 
our German colleague, I think, said, you know, what does Nick Gowing do about Syria? We go through a, a, an extraordinary uh, process of validation, even if it comes from YouTube. And there have been times during Libya and also Syria where we have been fed information which you wouldn't know about, but we have seen video which we know came from a few months or a couple of years ago. So we have to be incredibly careful. This authentication process is about brand and reputation, and if many of you like the BBC, that's one of the reasons. But we do have the staffing to do that, even though I have to tell you in this room that we are about to go through a 20% reduction in our cost base because of what's happened with the government. That's another issue. What I want to share with you is the work I've been doing in the last three or four years, which is very much in parallel to what Joe has been doing, Joe and I has been doing, about which, which summarizes this, that because of this uh, new environment, there's a new vulnerability, fragility, and brittleness of power. Whether you're in government or a civil servant or you're a corporate, Secondly, that is forcing a new level of accountability at a pace which is simply unmanageable, whether you're in a boardroom or you're in a cabinet. And thirdly, that's leading to ultimately a deficit of legitimacy because the public, particularly the next generation who are consuming this stuff and seeing it on their smartphone, are saying, I can see it on my smartphone, I can see the video, maybe from YouTube, but I'm not hearing anything from the government or from the corporate. What I'd therefore like to ask you, Anne-Marie, is particularly after what you talk about Judith McHale and what Alec Ross and you and I have talked privately about this uh, in the past, to which I pay tribute, actually, I would say it's very much a rare mountain of, moval, uh, of movement, which I see in, in companies and, and government. Most are still suffering from a significant mindset of denial, that this is in any way undermining their power and their ability to either govern or be a responsible corporate leader. I wonder what your, what your reflection is about, about the scale of acceptance of this dramatic new reality, which, as you say, has really only been happening in the last year. And obviously, uh, I could be accused of capitalizing on what's happened in the last few months with the Arab awakening, with, with the British Airports Authority, with BP, where 22% of the social media in, in the United States was consumed by one issue only. It was only BP. The chief executive didn't realize it. So we're talking about a culture of denial here. And that's what I see time and time again, including in a speech in London I gave only yesterday morning, that ultimately only 3 to 5% of executives and those in government, whether in India, or Singapore, who were shaken, as we discovered, Vivek was on the same platform, I think. We, we, were sh we discovered that the former foreign minister was completely shaken by what happened in the election earlier this year, that the PAP only got 62% of the vote. They didn't expect it, and the impact of social media. Same in India at the moment with Anna Hazara, a 74-year-old social activist who sat on his, his um, uh, making the complaint about corruption and didn't just get several hundred, he got several million mobilized digitally. It's creating an economic, a business, and ultimately a political earthquake in India from one man sitting on his prayer mat using digital power. So I come back to the, main, the, the core of the question, saying that this is well beyond the United States. You're seeing it time and time again, including in China and what happened in Dalian in, in, in mid-August. So first of all, thanks, and I would recommend to everybody here, because you, if you're here, you'll be interested in it, uh, Nick's book, which is Sky Full of Lies and Black Swans, which really documents a lot of this. It's a wonderful book. Uh, so I th first place, I think you're right. Uh, <laughs> BBC calling. <laughs> you go ahead. Okay. You know it's going to be yours, just it's as you ask. It's from Singapore. 
<laughs> there you go. Um, first of all, I think you're completely right that there is a tremendous amount of denial. Uh, and it, what I witnessed was sort of interesting because Secretary Clinton obviously ran a much less tech-savvy campaign than President Obama. She learned from that very quickly, and she hired one of the guys who had advised President Obama to do this stuff at the State Department. So she herself, she uses a little, but she understood that she had to have people around her who really did get this. So she was at least open to it uh, that way. But what, what I see, I see two things. One is just sheer fear. You know, if I talk to my parents about this stuff, my mother says, how do you do this? I mean, I'm swamped with information already. How could I possibly take in any more? To which the response is you just kind of jump in the stream and you respond, but you don't try to control. And that goes to the second point. Governments are still operating not on a you know, measure or observe and react model. They're, mo they're operating on a control and plan model. And that just doesn't work. Right? It doesn't work in industry. The best industry is sees what's out there and responds very quickly. But government, you know, we spend our time, I was head of policy planning, doing plans for next year and five years and 10 years out. I don't know if there's a solution beyond generational change, but I definitely see what you see. But the word denial, in, in other words, it'll go away, because Sky Full of Lies comes from the Burmese government. Yes, it does. Which said, what is happening on the streets and being transmitted around the world isn't really happening. It's a sky full of lies. And I see that still, time and time again. But so they're less so, perhaps, though, with the British and the American governments. I mean, as people in democracies, as they get elected in part using these tools, they're not going to deny them in the same way. Although I don't think they fully understand the dynamics of, of how it challenges the business of governments with respect to Burma or China or, or others. Yeah, I do think there's enough. Marvin. Um, Anne-Marie, I, um, I asked this question basically to give myself another opportunity to understand what you were getting at. And listening to Nick um, and to yourself earlier, I am more and more impressed by the necessity to have greater confidence in the accuracy of the information that you're being given. Because you spoke, and here at the roughest translation, but at one point you seem to be saying that whether you're reading the New York Times or watching Al Jazeera or picking stuff up on your tweet machine, that it all at a certain point equalizes. You said asymmetrical at one point that that you give people the power of the government, everything becomes equal. But to what extent is that real? Uh, to what extent is the information that we are increasingly dependent upon accurate, reliable, real, the fundamentals of good journalism? And my concern is that for those of you who are light years ahead of me in understanding all of this, that the technology is so far ahead of basic value systems of journalism that you seem to be more absorbed with the end result of the new technology than you are with enhancing some of the fundamental values of a free press. So help me through that kind of dilemma. So Marvin, I think I'm saying exactly the opposite. I really do. So let me, let me be, let me, sort out a couple of different things. One, the asymmetry point 
is not about journalism. It's about social protesters staying ahead of a government. So it's not about getting news per se. It's about people who are trying to organize opposition and who can use social media uh, and the disaggregation, the de decentralization it allows to stay one step ahead of a very centralized, oppressive, brutal government. That's the asymmetry. Uh, in, in, in news, though, I don't think, I, I'm saying something very different. I'm saying once I read the New York Times and thought, that is the truth until they covered, they, they started covering me occasionally, and then I didn't think that was the truth. Uh, what, and I still think the New York Times, the BBC, The Economist, Al Jazeera, they, they're, it's very clear when you are reading something that is done by a professional journalist, and I now get far more from professional journalists than I ever did before because I follow them individually and I don't have to wait for the, uh, the, the newspaper to come. But, I now get information that can contradict what the New York Times says, and some of it comes from people who are on the ground, and some of that comes from people who I know are credible. And I should have said this before the question from the professor from Fordham. Any of you, there's a guy named Andy Carvin, who is an NPR senior strategist. So Andy Carvin set himself up as the curator of what was coming out of the Middle East. So he's a journalist, he's from NPR, he made it his business to verify the credibility of what was coming out. So very soon, I would not retweet anything unless it had come from him, because I knew he had the people on the ground, and he was checking, and he was getting videos and tweets on everything under the sun. But what he produced was often either ahead of what I was getting out of the Times or the Post or somewhere else, or contradictory and that's where I said I come out of law where I think if I see multiple sources, I'm actually in a better position to try to figure out what is truth. Still relying on the profession of journalism, but understanding that there is no one canonical source. So I actually think I'm getting better information and closer to some, something that I still believe in as truth. Excuse me, I have time one more question. Hi, uh, Alexis Gelber, oh. for, Hi, Alexis. former fellow, uh, longtime editor at Newsweek, and now teaching at NYU. Uh, this has been a fascinating discussion, and I just want to follow up by asking how all of this affects the more traditional aspects of diplomacy uh, for our government. Um, how uh, does, uh, what happens when governments crack down on journalists, either citizen or otherwise, for upholding the American values of freedom of speech, or increasingly try to crack down on American tech companies that are providing the platforms for this sort of dissent. How does the government face that as a diplomatic challenge? Um, so it's a great question. The first thing is that, I mean, that was the impetus behind Secretary Clinton's original internet freedom speech. Uh, and then the second. So she gave two, and this was, again, something that Alec Ross's office and mine were very actively involved in. But the first thing to do was to declare that as our policy, that the right to connect, the freedom to connect, is as important as other human rights and freedoms. And the, you know, the speech was actually cast sort of 
in the in the mold of Roosevelt's four freedoms to indicate this this is a fundamental freedom, uh, and when governments crack down, then we will respond. And once you put that in policy, then of course all the all the embassies do have to respond. Uh, the other thing I would say is we're able to get information very quickly about when outages have occurred. In other words, so you, again, using the very social media, and again, in a lot of the Arab Spring, you would get information that something had gone down, and that would allow us to respond more quickly. Um, beyond that, though, you're back to the, the, the continual tension of having to have relations with a country and having to point out that you object to what it's doing, which is still there. I do believe in the Obama administration's philosophy of engagement, that we ought to be talking to all these governments. Uh, and so we protest it. But you know, when, when, China, when Google left China, obviously we still were working with, with, with China. We did what we could to help in various ways, but you can't privilege any one company. Uh, but beyond that, we can't, we're not doing anything more than we do with traditional human rights violations. Thank you. That was fun. That was fun. Yeah.